You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys episode number 63 for Monday the 15th of May 2017. My guest today is Justin Sloan, who is a former video game writer and a current novelist and screenwriter. He completed an MA in writing program and also a professional program in screenwriting. Additionally, he's published short fiction and poetry. Justin was in the Marines for five years and has lived in Japan, Korea and Italy. Here's Justin explaining how he originally caught the writing bug. So I started to get into writing with fiction books, uh, novels, back in 2010-ish, somewhere around there. And uh, so first thing first is I just sat down and started writing, figuring I'd write one by the time I was 50. And then I just fell in love with it and just kept going. But then like three or four months, I had 120,000 words done. And I was like, oh my God, I love this. And totally knew it was the way forward for me. Uh, at the time, I was still thinking it would be like a you know, a dual life, you know, writing in the evenings and mornings and weekends and working the day job, which at the time was government, uh, post-conflict reconstruction, weird stuff. And then I went on to do some uh, stuff at the Federal Reserve Bank, which is like monetary Asia policy stuff and lots of different stuff going on there. You know, it was <laughs> a total different lifestyle. Uh, and then at one point I realized, hey, I'm spending all this time being not creative and that sucks. I need to be creative all the time. And so that's where I made the transition. Okay, so 120,000-odd words, that's quite an effort for a first book. Most people would start a little smaller than that. Did you aim to write that much when you started? No, 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 no. Just wanted to write a fantasy book. Uh, I was, it was all these Game of Thrones books were making me fall in love, and then I was waiting for the next one and just, you know, impatient, impatient. And I figured, well, why wait when I could try to write it myself? And so I think it was more along the lines of just figuring out what a story is. And so that ended up being my land of God's book. That's the first one. Uh, what I wrote at the time ended up being the first two. And then I ended up writing a third one later on. But at, at the, the time I was just, you know, trying to figure out what it is. So if you go back and read that book, it's much more taking its time compared to a lot of my newer books, uh, uh, you know, studying screenwriting and video game writing and all that definitely changed my approach to how I write stories. And so it's an interesting uh, juxtaposition looking at that book versus my new ones and seeing like, who I was then and who I am now. Maybe some people seem to like who I was then better. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how when you look back at it, how how good was it in terms of craft? You've written a phenomenal number of books uh, in all sorts of different genres. It would seem. So, how was it as a first punt, as a first go? Well, so I definitely rewrote a lot of it, you know, uh, obviously, and revision. So back in those days, it was when I would write a book and take like five years to revise it and everything, right? But what I did in the meantime was write other books. So instead of just writing the one book and taking forever on it and going back to it and just being like, oh, I can't finish a book, I, I decided to write a bunch of kids' books in the meantime because I knew my craft wasn't quite there. And so I, I enrolled in a few writing classes, and then I ended up taking a master's in writing program at Johns Hopkins and uh, working on my craft the whole time and thinking as I write older books, because I started at like nine, my protagonist, and then I went and did an 11-year-old protagonist, and I got older and older with the idea being that my 
craft, my prose can improve as my story ages get older as well. <laughs> so then I went back to that book and rewrote large chunks of it, changed the style. Like at first it was, you know, in the land of blah, 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 where trees are blah, blah, blah. And, you know, kind of like boring. <laughs> and now it's a much more character centric uh, focus. So the first like four or five chapters probably weren't there in that early draft. And there's a bunch of other stuff along the way. Uh, but as far as like story, I'm part of me wants to get back to where I kind of was because there's all these grand moments of uh, introspection and thinking about the world. And nowadays I'm, my instinct goes to the screenwriting style where it's very much tell the story, get in there, see what's happening. No wasted words whatsoever. Uh, and I think a happy medium is, is a good point there. Like my hounds of God book. It's this, this uh, werewolf vampire story I did recently. It's kind of a dark superhero in a way. Uh, that, that, that book's been criticized a lot for being too, uh, shallow, I guess is a good word, too rushed. Like they feel like it's just like action, action, and then it's over. And and I think that's a big part of it because for me, that's the story I like to read. And it's the story I like to see on the screen and whatnot nowadays. But a lot of readers expect that more, uh, deep, you know, introspection, taking its time, wandering along the path and looking at the trees and thinking about life, you know, <laughs> So, so part of me is trying to get back to where I used to be. Is there a danger then that you can overlearn the craft, that you can become almost so paralyzed with what you're supposed to be doing that you don't <laughs> just get on and be creative and do what you should be doing, which is telling a great story? Exactly. And uh, and I wouldn't say that necessarily Hounds of God is there because I still have a great uh, fan base who loves that book and I still have a place in my heart for how it works and so I'm not going to say that you should get totally away from what I'm doing now, but, but th there definitely is that worry. And, and some points along the way, I found myself being stuck there. Uh, in screenwriting, you study the, the structure a lot, story structure. And you can definitely see people who have approached writing novels very focused on the story structure element of it. And it's kind of just like, this happens, this happens. Oh, there's that beat that you're supposed to expect right there. And then it happens, happens. But they don't spend the time getting into the characters and getting to know who these characters are. And, and because of that, it, it feels very shallow, kind of like I was saying, but even more so. I, I still feel that Hounds of God gets into more details of the character and more of the internal than some of my readers give it credit for. <laughs> but so that's kind of like a one It's going towards that extreme. And then there's the far extreme where, where you can definitely, and at points in my writing career, I definitely, too, got kind of lost in that story structure element of it. And then I just had to take a step back, put the story aside for like a month and then come back to it and say, okay, where can I find the emotion here? You've got such a long list of books that when I scroll through them on Amazon, I lose count. I can't. Do you know what the count is of books that you've written? Uh, according to Book Tracker or Book Report, sorry, Book Report, which is one of these things a lot of us use, you know, to track the numbers of sales. Uh, that one says I have 41 books, but that also counts like short stories and whatnot. Um, I'm not sure it counts some of my books, though. It does not. It doesn't count the books that I've done with uh, Michael Anderley, for example, because those were published under his account, so it wouldn't show up there. So somewhere between 40 and 50. Over seven years, which is, well, that's quite a lot of year, isn't it? How are you, you started when you were working, so how, how did you fit it in? Yeah, so actually I started publishing, my first published book was October, November 2014, um, so, so all those came in there. And so when I first started publishing, a lot of people were like, how are you publishing all these books? And I think there's two answers for that, which is a lot of them are short. Like I mentioned, I did a lot of these younger books, like middle grade. So they're like a hundred pages. Um, so that's not so tough. And, uh, and then I had a lot of them kind of partially written before I started publishing. So, you know, over those years, I was talking about how I wrote some other books, like the Ali Strom books that I've done. Uh, 
so those are mostly done. Those were like 75% done at the point when I decided to start publishing them. And then I just went back and rewrote those. And so it wasn't like crazy amounts of work. Uh, so, so it's varied over the years because of kids. So I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old now. Uh, my, my optimal schedule that made it work was I would get up at like four or five and then write for two or three hours before work. And maybe I would take a lunch break and write some more. I'm not very good at doing it in the evenings. So usually evenings would be my editing time or my brainstorm, put down some outline idea time. Uh, and that worked great, right? Because if you can write a thousand or two thousand words an hour, and then you have two or three hours in the morning and maybe a little bit of time throughout the day here and there, that's that's amazing. You could easily get you know a, a sixty thousand word do- book done uh, in less than a month, a couple weeks, three weeks or so. Um, but then kids come along, right? So <laughs> you, you you think you're on a schedule, you're not. They start you start getting okay. Well, I'll try to write in the evenings because they're waking up at four in the morning, and obviously I can't wake up at two in the morning because I'm going to sleep at like ten or eleven at night. So you start thinking, okay, I'll try to write at night. And then of course they wake up and mess that up. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for a while, what I was doing is I would just whatever time I could, I would just get in little sprints. So on the train to work, I'd get in a twenty minute sprint, and that might be my writing for the day. And just sit down, write as much as I can for twenty minutes. Cool. Uh, maybe in the evenings here and there I would do it. And then, and then my wife started seeing that money was coming in. So she said, Oh wow, this is awesome. I need to make sure you're doing this. Because <laughs> why would we pass up on money? And so on the weekends, what we would do is I'd wake up at like five or six, whenever the kids woke up and watch them until around eight or nine when she would wake up. And then I would write for my two or three hours. So I'd watch them for two, three hours and then she'd watch them for two, three hours. So that was great. Then I started making real progress. I was able to do these one book a month with uh, Michael Anderle that we've been doing for about three or four months now. And then as of, uh, as you heard, uh, recently decided, well, why am I doing this? If I can make more money writing books than I am at the job, I'm basically losing money by having a job. So I decided to go full time. Right. I'm going to dig into the Michael Andale, uh connection and the, uh, leaving your job a little bit later on, if I may, I just want to, I want to come into the early, I want to just dig a little bit more into the early career if we can. Um, yeah. what I've noticed, uh, again, when you look at your Amazon author page, is your genres are very mixed and you've decided to to mm-hmm. write under different genres in your own name you haven't gone for different uh, pseudonyms for instance what, right. what what made you make that decision and how's that worked out for you uh two parts uh, one part is i love brandon sanderson he's one of my favorite authors and he does you know some kids books some middle grade books whatever uh as well as his main fantasy which is what people know him for and he has some little other things that are Kind of different. And so, so my argument to myself at the time was, well, I would be pissed if I couldn't find his books because they were under a pseudonym. Uh, so I decided to write all mine under my own name as well so that my fans who are like myself with Brandon Sanderson <laughs> would be pleased, you know. And, and it's turned out well. A lot of readers want to read all that stuff. They love reading my Ali Strom books or the teddy bear books. And then they go read uh, one of my older books like Land of Gods, and, and they're they're quite different. Land of Gods has some violence. It has some implied sexual stuff, although it doesn't happen on the on the screen, on the page. Uh, versus, of course, the kids' books has none of that. <laughs> but a lot of these older readers love reading the kids' books as something they can pass on to their children or their grandchildren and then the older books for themselves. So a little bit of something for the kids, a little bit of something for you, which is, which is nice. Uh, but that said, on the marketing side, I think it's probably hurt me. As a as a starting off author, you know, I think uh, anybody who's starting off, especially in the indie world, should pick a main focus and stay there for a while until they've established themselves, uh, unless they decide that that focus is just wrong and then they could maybe go a different direction. But but you should try to do as quick as possible. Like Michael Anderle, he found his audience of vampire 
kind of military vampire slash vampires in space slash whatever it is, uh, he found that following real quick and stuck with that for now he's at 16 or so books plus all the spinoffs. And that's awesome versus I had all these genres all over the place and people would find them and maybe cross over a little bit. But but it was never like a huge breakout because I imagine readers might get confused. You know, they're like, well, this is interesting, but I don't know if I would like those books, so I'm not going to bother. Versus if they're all in the same genre or, or the same series, you're like, well, this is interesting. And those I know for sure are going to be exactly what I've already read. So I'm going to check out, you know, so it's just that taking that extra leap. Uh, you would hope that people would like the writing enough. And so my long term strategy is that they would like it and that I'd have people who would check out all these books. So I'm building, building more of the me brand versus the series brand, if that makes sense. But that's still to be tested. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the, the money? How, how long was it? before meaningful money started to come in? Because it's usually quite a slow start for most indie authors. Yeah, yeah. And well, so especially when I started publishing, it wasn't really that big of a goal of mine. I wasn't really worried about uh, the money as much because I was working full-time as a video game writer. Um, what happened is I was, I was there. I started with this other guy. Six months later, he got fired. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, I want to – these books that I've been working on for a few years now, I better start getting them out there because I don't want to be – another guy who got fired and then have nothing else to my name at that time. I want to be, if I do get let go or if I decide to leave, I want to have an established author career going that I could suddenly jump on and leverage to go to the next level. It didn't do that much then because I wasn't spending a lot of time promoting it or researching how to get there or anything like that. Um, what happened is finally probably six months or so after I left, that's when I started caring about it. I got another job that I enjoyed and then I started thinking, okay, how do I take this to the next level? And I, I got some good mentors. And what I started doing was the the free days. You know, if you're in Kindle Unlimited, Amazon exclusive, you can do free days through them uh, and, and advertise those. So I started doing free days every month and advertising it. And that took me not to humongous levels. That took me from like the 100 a month to 1,000 a month plus level, like 1,000 or 2,000 or so, uh, which is nice. But it, living in the Bay Area, that buys you a piece of bread or something. Uh, so. <laughs> Not amazing. Uh, you know, and like transportation to work is like $10 a day on just taking the bar or $10 each way or I forget how much, but it's expensive. Uh, it, it It's not enough. Um, and then what happened is I started partnering with people and especially Michael Enderley. And then that's taken me to the significant level where I could, like I said, make more than I was making my job. Okay, I'm going to get to the partnering, honestly. Uh, but what worked for you when you were doing those um, early promos? What was working for you in terms of advertising? What, what were the, the hot places to go to shift the books? Yeah, well, I definitely found that the kids stuff doesn't work as well, <laughs> for sure. Um, I would do the exact same thing with the, the middle grade books and as I was doing with the fantasy books. And the fantasy books were making like a 1,000 or two, and then the other ones were making like a few hundred mostly the Alice Strong books. And so it wasn't comparable, you know, putting the same effort and the same money into advertising. It just shows you like, oh, wow, this is just not the right way to do it if you have kids' books. Which I'm not really sure what is the right way. It's just so much harder, you know, with the younger audience. But for the fantasy books, uh, definitely having a trilogy helped and then going to some of the key sites, like Book Barbarian is a great one, uh, Free Booksy, and trying to stack a few of these. So doing like two days, uh, you know, two days in January, two days in February, one day in March, if that's your 90-day window for Kindle Unlimited. Uh, 
and, and then just promoting the heck out of them. And so if you can get a mailing list, of course, telling your mailing list. And what I did basically is I said you get three books uh, when you join the mailing list, but then one of them was I will just make sure to notify you when I offer it for free once a month, and I'm going to. And the logic there being that that way it's not just me giving it to them for free via book funnel or something. It's actually building up my ranking because they're getting it on Amazon, uh, but it's still a free book that they'll just make sure I'm just making sure they're notified about. And then I get the uh, verified purchase, I believe, when they get leave a review too, which is kind of nice. So anyway, <laughs> doing doing a lot of that and just doing these different promo sites like Free Booksy, uh, Book Barbarian, uh, Mini Books, Booksends, etc. And that all just started piling up because when people download them, and even if they're free, a lot of people use Kindle Unlimited, click the Kindle Unlimited option and read them that way. Uh, and you start getting the page reads, and then you start getting the people who buy your second and third book in the series, and it all started adding up. Brilliant. Okay. So um, you're giving those away for free, and you are, like myself, a lover of writing in trilogies. Is that tactical, the trilogy writing? Maybe. A lot of people are talking about nowadays the whale readers. I don't know if you're familiar with the whale reader concept, but it's you know people who, like a whale just consumes food, it opens his mouth and goes, and everything goes in there. And whale readers are these people who just like plow through books. Um, all the time. And so a lot of people are saying that whale readers want at least four books in a series, if not more, because they want to get in there and be able to just keep going for a long time and not have to run out of books in like two days and have nothing left. So my fourth book in my new series just came out recently and it's doing quite well. And that's exciting. It's, it's made number one do quite well. Also, uh, go back to doing well. I mean, and so the, and I think that four is a better way to go. Uh, a lot of people also talk about they do the book box set of three on like BookBub if they get one. And then the fourth book sells quite well because of that. And then the box set, of course, is a nice thing to have with three books in it. Uh, so I, I, as a reader, love trilogies because I want there to be an end point. I don't want to be stuck in this universe forever because I feel like there's no way out. It's like playing a video game that lasts 100 hours. I can't do that. I don't have the time for that. But a game that lasts 12 hours, that's cool. I can do this. I can, That'll take me only a year. <laughs> The amount of time I can put into it. So, so yeah, as a reader, I like the trilogies. As a writer, I'm starting to see the value in longer series, though. When you look at your uh, covers, there looks like there's a very strong influence from TV, film, video games. Can we just delve into the time that you spent as a video game writer? Are, are you Were you writing story there, or were you doing tech stuff? Uh, no, I was a pure writer. It's just like basically like writing uh, screenplays. Okay, so well, t tell me about that, because I, I don't know how that's done. How does it work? Is it done as a team, or do you write in isolation? Yeah, it's definitely a team. It depends on the game company, of course, but in that situation, they have, like, 20 or 30 writers, so <laughs> quite a lot, and they're usually working on, like, three or four games uh, at any given time, and so you'd have, you know, do the math, and you have a certain number of writers per game, but then they do it even weirder, where there's episodes, so... Maybe you have like three or four writers on an episode, sometimes one, sometimes ten. It's, <laughs> it varies. Uh, and, and so basically we would do everything that a writer would do as a, as a novelist, same idea, except for a little bit more. So you come up with characters, come up with character arcs, story arcs, all the conflict thrown in there, story beat things, all that. And then you pitch it to some people. They, they see if they like it or not. And then you go back and revise and come back and do it again. Uh and then it's sitting down and writing the action, uh, very much more like a screenplay versus a novel because you don't want to get all super prosy. The main point is to convey to the artists and the developers and all those people what's going to happen. And then, of course, the dialogue and making sure that the dialogue works for the voice actors who are going to come in and perform it, which is a quite another big difference between novel writing. You know, here you write your novels and people read it and they like it and you might do an audio book, but it's still a very different feeling uh, compared to when it goes on a video game and suddenly these famous actors are reading your lines and 
there's a bunch of different actors reading it, so they have different takes on it. Um, and, and usually somebody else is directing it, not you. Not always the case, but in this case. Uh, and so it might be read differently than you expected it to be, and uh, quite, quite a different uh, feeling there. What did you learn then? What did you carry forward from doing that work into your books? Um, so a big part of it, and that's what it was different about the games too, is you have to think about character choices, and that's what the main part of these games were. It's kind of like almost watching a TV show or a movie, but then you make choices along the way that impact where it goes and how people react to you. Uh, and because of that, you start thinking about all the different options that are available. So if you were to ask me um, if I'll help you betray our captain <laughs> on a pirate ship, uh, <laughs> I might have three or four, three options and a silent option there. And each of those should be coming from a different place where that character could be in that moment. Um, and then your responses, they can't be too, too varied either though, because then you have all these production people who have to make a totally different part of the game that will cost too much money and too much time to do. So there's constraints on it, which is interesting. Uh, so you start thinking about that in a book sense, which is interesting because then when you come across choices that your main character is making, you might want to think about it in a few different ways. You know, which is which ways make the most sense here? Which way are more interesting? Instead of just going to the first one that pops in your head, which often is kind of cliche, it's great to sit back and think about these. And doing that in the video game sense, I think, helped it become more of a natural state of mind versus a forced state of mind that I used to try to do. Because I think at the Johns Hopkins writing program, they try to drill that into our head also. Like, don't go with that first choice of what they're going to say or first response. Think about it. See what some other options are. Uh, that was a big thing. Another one was player agency. When you're doing games, you want to think about the player and having control of the moment. So if a big explosion happens, uh, you don't necessarily want the random other person, the non-player character or something, to make that happen when the character could make it happen and make it more cool. And you get to feel like you caused that. Similarly, in a book, if, if, I'm, my main, if I'm writing Harry Potter, I don't necessarily want Ron to be the one that defeats the, you know, makes all the uh, Death Eaters go away or the, uh, what are those, <laughs> you know, uh, what are those things that do the kiss? The Dementors, the Dementors. Yeah. You don't want to be him that makes the de Dementors go away because that's not as cool. You want Harry to be the one that comes out and does this humongous Patronus thing. <laughs> Charm. Um, you know, because then you own it because you as the reader are kind of living that story through the main character. Uh, and then you feel cool because you're like, I did that versus if watching somebody else do it, which is like, oh, that's pretty cool. They did that. Video games are very um, modular. You know, they're platform games. They go from one step to the other. So when you write your books now as a result of that experience, are you quite a planner? Kind of, no. No, no I don't think that's really changed uh, as much. I'm definitely an outliner to a degree. Uh, we were, we've been taught, So I always thought I was an outliner until I've been working with these other guys, and I saw the kind of outlines they're doing, which are like 15, 16 pages. And I'm just like, what? That's too much detail, man. You're going to how are you going to write the story? <laughs> so for me, I like to do like a two page uh, beat sheet, you know, with like the main things that are going to happen, the main character, emotional arcs that are going to go on through that. So more of the why versus the what, you know, and then when I'm writing and I'm figuring out the what, and I'm figuring out the how, which means like what's actually happening and, and how it's happening. But mostly when I start, I want to just know like what, why are things happening? What's going on with the characters, emotions and in their heads and how do we get to these different points? Um, and then a lot of times that'll change when I'm writing, too. So I've realized I'm kind of a discovery outliner. I outline on a high level, and then I discover a lot of it along the way. And often I'll pause at the end of a chapter or end of a section, take a breather, and then come back and outline a little bit of the next section based on what I just did. So I'll add, like, four or five more beats to the beginning of the next section based on what I wrote the deep previous day or an hour ago or something. 
Um, so I'm kind of like outlining as I go. Okay. So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you is that you did done some screenwriting as well. Did, mm-hmm. Have you actually put that into practice? Have you actually, you know, written any screenplays yet? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, quite a few. Uh, I don't know how many, 15 or 20 or so. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And some of them have done well in contests, which is great. They've won a couple of small contests, placed in some of the bigger ones. Um, I've had two optioned. One is potentially going to get made at the end of this year. We have a director and stuff ready to go. I think it's just based on rewrites and where we, what direction we decide to go with it. Cause there's some debate up in the air about which direction to take it. And that's based on a book, which is kind of cool. We adapted somebody's book, uh, Sean Platt from the self-publishing podcast. Oh yes. Yes. Me and him worked together on that one and, uh, based on a book that he and David W. Wright did. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. And then we have another one that PT Hilton and I adapted from John L. Monk's book kick. And that's a TV show. And we have that out there and, uh, there's a shopping agreement on it, and hopefully it'll go somewhere exciting, except for that I guess there's a writer's strike going on right now or a potential writer's strike about to happen or something like that that's kind of throwing Hollywood off its kilter. And so in terms of the cash when you get optioned, how exciting is it? Uh, book sales are better. Really? <laughs> yeah, which is – I mean, it depends what level of book sales you're at, but uh, nowadays book sales are better. So it's kind of a funny – I'm, I'm kind of torn about where I want to take that part of my career, you know, because the screenwriting is fun, but it's so much less of a guarantee. Uh, not that books are necessarily a guarantee, but at this point, they're much more of one. They're much more uh, reliable, uh, which is <laughs> funny, you know. But but just screenwriting as a whole is a totally different industry, right? Like you can sell these and you can option them and whatever. But a lot, a big part of it is you go down to Hollywood and you go to all these pitch sessions to or pitch meetings to try to get on assignment. So like they already have something they want made and then they hire you to, to write it. And that's a total different ballgame that I don't want to do because I want to spend time with my family and my kids. And I don't want to be stuck in traffic for hours trying to get to different meetings. And uh, <laughs> and then just the fact that they they don't sell they don't make super big money usually, uh, like maybe 10,000 or so, which would be good from what I hear. Like we had somebody on our podcast and I asked what a good number was and she said five. And so. So 10 is double that, which is nice. But $10,000 is not a whole lot of money. But that's an option. You know, you get more if it goes into production. So that's exciting. So it's not like it's not like nothing, but it's definitely not. You have to be selling a lot of these a year to be making a good living off of it. Yeah, if you if you look at it in terms of annual salary, what you need yeah. to be earning, um, and that puts it into context. It sounds like a lot of money in isolation. But in actual fact, I guess it takes a lot of your time, too. You have a lot of misses for every hit that you get. So, you know, if you earn yeah. 10,000, that's a lot of hours gone into getting to that stage. Yeah, and I have a buddy who sold one a little bit ago for, I think, 150,000, which is awesome, right? That's that's good money for sure. Mm. But then my, that might only happen once every five years or so, even if you get other little things here and there. Like, they might be the smaller like 10,000 or 20,000 ones. And the 150,000 thing only happens very rarely. Uh, so he's even looking at getting into books more because he sees that that is a more viable option for constant income. I know that uh, in a former life, you were in the Marines for five years. And um, this is just <laughs> a perception uh, because I'm immersed in the indie author community. But I hear a lot of ex-forces uh, people uh, uh, writing. And I'm interested to know if you think there's any reason for that. You know, for instance, is it is it the discipline? You said you get up at five o'clock every morning. Does it does being in the military bring a discipline with it that helps you to write? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I think it's also the nostalgia a lot of us look back at those years as, you know, kind of the glory years, the exciting times, uh, even like the small moments. Like I remember this moment in boot camp where we're all in, a, in our 
formation or whatever. I don't remember all the terms because I'm getting old now. <laughs> but we're walking. <laughs> I remember we're walking like two lines of us and the guy at the front and he's like singing the song and we all repeat the song, you know, one of those kind of things. And we're just surrounded. It's like sunset and then the hills of Camp Pendleton are surrounding us. And it's this really majestic moment in, in my life that I always kind of just have these uh, flashbacks to. And, and trying to capture that and other feelings like that in our books, I think, is a big part of why we write. You know, not everybody has those kind of experiences. The kid who just went to grad school and undergrad for writing and never went and traveled the world or did anything exciting might not have that as much. You know, his flashbacks are going to be to some party in his dorm or something like that. No offense, dorm partiers. You guys probably have awesome stories, too. But it's a I definitely think that feeling is what drives us to try to capture those moments and share them with the world. And what of the discipline? You know, I hear so many indie authors say, I procrastinate, I, you know, I can't do the work. <laughs> but uh, again, I, you know, I'm just interested in how many people are in the military who have great success with this. And just look at the number of books you've written, for instance. You know, that, that isn't normal. I mean that in a nice way. But that isn't <laughs> or, or typical, I should say. It isn't typical, is it, the number of books you've written? Well, yeah, maybe. Look at Craig Martell. He was a Marine, retired 20 years um, and then did some consulting stuff. And he only started writing, I think, like a little over a year ago or so. And he already has, I don't know, like 20 books out there. <laughs> it's crazy, right? And uh, and they're like real novels, too. They're not like kids' books. <laughs> uh, and so, so, so I would look at him and myself as two Marines that are examples of exactly what you're saying. Uh, I mean, that said, I know people obviously who are not in the Marines and have good discipline. But I definitely think that that's part of it. Like when you get out of the military, you're used to waking up at 5 a.m. to get the job done. You're used to this idea of mission accomplishment and always moving forward to take the hill. So if you're sitting around and you're like, oh, maybe I'll just watch this TV show for a few hours instead of writing today, uh, usually our mind is going to say, screw that, write the book. If you finish it, then you can go watch the TV show. Um, some people's discipline might not be there for that. Yeah. OK, so so when you hear people saying, oh, you know, I can't get around to the writing, I've only done 100 words today and things like that. Presumably you think you just bowl at them like a sergeant major or something like that. Do you and think, you know, just <laughs> get get up and run, do it. What is your major malfunction? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're, so you're a doer, essentially, and, and you're used to doing because presumably, you know, you've been kicked out of bed at all hours of the day in the military. You've done some pretty horrible and testing things. And writing a book is the least of them, I would guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like compare co compare getting woken up at 4 a.m. to go on a run in the ocean and get thrown around in the sand and water almost drowned. Uh, compare that to waking up to write a cool fight scene in your fantasy novel, uh, which, yeah, I, I think that this is not so bad. <laughs> and, and the other thing I want to ask you is, is um, I just want to explore maybe the reasons you started writing. When we started this conversation, you were in quite uh, boring governmental work. And, and I wonder <laughs> if a lot of the, the people who've been in the military also find some adjustment difficulty with the, with the boredom of that. And, and then the creativity then has to burst out. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say it was so boring per se. I think it's more just, yeah, the create, it wasn't creative. You know, there's two different, like, even if you have an exciting job, uh, there's still a difference. Like, even at, even at the video game job, uh, obviously that's not boring. That was a lot of fun, mm. but, it, but you're still telling somebody else's story and you're, it, it still somewhat feels like work because you're trying so hard to guess what they want and fill in the blanks for them. Versus if you just sit down and write something, you're being creative. It's a totally different part of your brain. You're totally just letting the juices, creative juices flow, you know. Um, so I think that's more what it is. You just sometimes you got to tell your story. you got to let your brain just get it all out on the page and see what happens. And you can't always do that even in exciting jobs. 
Okay, now you you are a man who just loves collaboration. Uh, you know, looking at your <laughs> titles, and I'm I'm really interested in this because um, you know, I from my point of view, I've never collaborated before, but I think of it as something you know difficult, maybe full of friction. When when did you start your first collaboration? How did it come about? It's an interesting question. So of course there was well, actually before I started. Well, I probably would have started writing at that point, but around the time when I was writing my first one, uh, I think I'd finished an early draft, those 120,000 words or so. And one of my buddies was like, Oh yeah, I want to be a writer too. And so we had done, we did something then, but that didn't go anywhere. We, I think we wrote like 30,000 words of it. It was kind of cool. Then we wrote the screenplay version of it to try to figure out what we were doing. And then we both just kind of got bored with the concept or we got some feedback that discouraged us or something like that. Uh, <laughs> in hindsight, it was a pretty cool story. I might go back to it someday. Yeah. It just needed a lot of work that we were like, well, we don't really want to spend that time on that story. Let's move on to the next things. Uh, so then the skip forward a couple of years and we, I started doing the podcast thing where I went on the self-publishing podcast and Kevin Tomlinson's uh, Wordslinger podcast and Michael Laron heard me on one of those and he got in contact with me and we started talking about ideas and we checked each other out. And we're like, Hey, you wrote a teddy bear book. I wrote a teddy bear book. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I call yeah. bonding. That is. <laughs> yeah. And they were both kind of the exact same story. They were both a teddy bear's child gets taken by monsters and the teddy bear has to go rescue the child. You know, it's how random is that, that we both had that same thing going on. And then he had written some books that were kind of choose your own adventure ish. He calls them the decision select books. And I was doing the telltale thing, which is very much that. And so we were like, well, let's try to come up with a cool fantasy idea for one of these decision select stories and do it kind of telltale style. Um, in the process of writing it, that totally changed. It just became a novel because we realized it was going to be a way better story and we could focus on books two and three that way. Uh, and, and that ended up not being a teddy bear story. <laughs> That's our modern necromancy series, which is about a guy who's hoping to revive his dead wife, kind of, but in the process gets betrayed and instead has to stop a bad guy from taking over the earth with an undead army. Uh, yeah, quite different from the teddy bear story. <laughs> In some ways, he still goes into the afterlife to try to see his uh, lost fiance. Uh, so there's some similarities, but but yeah. <laughs> so that was the first one, and then it kind of just kept rolling from there, uh, you know. But what does it look like? I mean, do, do you do you sit and chat and write the words together, or do you take uh, shifts and somebody revises? I've really got no feel for how it works when you work collaboratively like that. Yeah, I have a bunch of different experiences in this regard. Um, some of my most recent experiences have been where basically we chat about some ideas, then I do the outline to send it to him. He gives me some feedback, then I go and write the story, send it to him. He does a quick pass on it and an edit and has some of his people look over it to edit and make sure it's cool, and then we publish it. So that, which is pretty awesome, because he has the big marketing team. So I think that works for people when it's kind of uneven as far as who has broader reach, you know, a bigger platform. Um, but then I worked with P.T. Hilton on some cool middle grade children's books. And in those cases, what we did is we outlined like crazy together. And then he wrote book one and four and I wrote book two and three. Oh, wow. And <laughs> yeah, which is a totally different experience and really cool because we had four books done within like a month, which is, you know, unheard of. Uh, so, so that was a nice experience. I liked that a lot. And, uh, before that, so with Michael Iran, we basically just wrote together, which also was a great experience, but I think it took a lot more out of us because we had to go through and rewrite each other and we had to try to make sure all the voices matched and everything. Uh, and, and that was, that was quite fun because, you know, we were working more collaboratively together, but it was also, like I said, a, a big challenge because if you go just write your own book, you can just bust it out. If you're doing it this way, you have to make sure that everything's, uh, you're checking in with each other to make sure you're not 
uh, canceling out something they did in a previous chapter or saying something that totally didn't fit with another character's thing they did earlier. And so that's hard. Um, I'm actually doing something like that again now. It's weird, uh, but quite fun. <laughs> We're doing a space marine kind of mech slash, uh, what do they call that? Um, space opera story. Hmm. And um, I, what I'm basically doing is two guys are writing most of the story, and I'm kind of serving as like the the overviewer. You know, so I, I help with the outline. When they come up with chapters, I look them over and say, yeah, this is cool, or add my own little spin to the top of it. So I'm kind of serving in a way that Michael Anderley has with me. I'm kind of doing that with this series, and those two guys are writing it. Um, but I'm sure it's going to be a lot of that same work. What's, what they're doing, though, is interesting, is one of them is mostly outlining, and then the other guy is mostly writing, and then it goes to me, and then I fill in some blanks and provide comments, and then it goes back through another process like that. So, interesting. No, I'm, I'm wondering whether the fact, again, that you've been in the military, that you're used to working in teams, you know, pulling together, if that makes this collaborative process easier for you. Because when I think of that, I just think of, you know, roadblocks, arguments, tension. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to get on with it by myself. Yeah, yeah. And I think the military thing, I think the telltale thing, because, like, I've already had that collaborative teamwork and creative experience. Uh, definitely the Marine part of it, I was a sergeant, so I had people under me that I was, you know, corralling and whatnot commanding, kicking around. <laughs> uh, so, so that all definitely helps. And I think that's important in a lot of these stories, too, is figuring out kind of who's in charge of the story. Like with Michael Anderley's stories, uh, his we have to make sure it matches his audience. Well, he puts my name on top because it's mostly me who wrote it. And so that way we know that if if somebody hates the story, it's my fault. If somebody loves it, it's my fault. <laughs> you know, and it's more just like, he's giving his spin on it and, and making sure that it works for his crowd. Uh, but at the end of the day, like if he says, well, I'm just going to kill that character. Um, but I mostly wrote it. I imagine if I said no, he'd be okay with that because it's still mostly my story in a way. Mm. And similarly with like these other stories, it's, it's always great to have one person who's kind of the captain of the ship, you know, like, and you just start establish that up front. Like, Hey, this is going to be my book. We're going to write it together. Book two could be your book. You know, like when it comes to, Whoever's calling the shots, book two, that's you. Book three will be me. Book four will be you. And that way there's always that good leadership. There's never any moments in there that clash. And we could just decide up front, too. Like if you both totally disagree with something, throw it out the window and come back and try something totally different, you know, because it's it's better than you guys picking one of those two options that the other person hates. And that ends up in the final book. And let's talk about Michael Anderley, because Michael is very much the, the man of the moment and his Facebook group, which has, um, you know, come out of his success and his philosophy about how to write books, um, is very much the Facebook group of the moment, as far as I can see. It seems to be where everybody's heading for. Can you just talk yeah. us through his his concept, this sort of concept of of, of writing, uh, you know, so many books and earning so much money from a, a limited number of books? It's quite an interesting process. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's totally evolved too. Like when I first uh, heard of him, I think in one of these podcasts. Uh, he was talking about the 20 books to 50K concept, which is he was making a certain amount from his books. And he was like, oh, if I have 20 books, that means I'll make 50,000 a year. And then, of course, I think by the time he got to like book four, he was already making like 50,000 a month or something. Uh, five or, you know, one of these books. I don't remember which one number. Um, but he has all that information out there for people to check out uh, in his Facebook group and other places. And. And so I think that's where he started. And he had like four beta readers who loved his work and who wanted to write also. And so he started kind of mentoring them and teaching them how to do it. Uh, one of them is uh, T.S. Paul now, who's also doing quite well, and some of these other ones out there. And they started this Facebook group, and people started jumping on. I think I jumped on around number somewhere in the hundreds, early hundreds, like 100 or 200. 
And now it's at like seven or 8,000. <laughs> What's funny at the time was he was talking about this Facebook group as like this big thing. And for, in my mind, I'm like, it's a Facebook group. whoop de freaking do. Uh, but then you join it and you're like, holy crap, this is the best thing ever. And that's what really changed like my life as far as an author, because I start uh, getting all these different people who are mentoring me, who actually know what they're talking about, who are making 16,000, 30,000, 50,000, 100,000 a month off of their books. And you're just like, holy crap, this is legit. This is not just, you know, at the San Francisco Writers Conference one year, somebody said the average self-published author sells six books a year. That is depressing. <laughs> but then you get in one of these groups where you're just daily interacting with people who are making big dollars every month off their books. And you start realizing, oh, it's not just some pipe dream. Uh, it can actually be done. You just got to figure out how, have the right discipline, study the craft to a degree, and talk to the people who are doing it so you, you're, you're going the right direction instead of wasting all this time. The problem is you get a lot of these people who, not in that group, in, in general, like I've met at writers' conferences and other places who just don't want to listen to advice. Like They're like, oh, that's great. Thank you so much for the advice. And then they do it their own way anyway. And that's stupid. <laughs> there was one person who had done like seven covers for her books and spent lots of money, like three or 4,000 on each cover. And they looked horrible. And I didn't say they looked horrible, but I tried to give her the feedback that she should probably look on Amazon, look at the page where her book would show up, and look at the other covers and make sure that hers would stand out amongst those other covers. At least be on equal footing, if not better. Uh, she was like, oh, no, I'm good. I spent money on these covers. I'm keeping them. And they just look like crap. They look like $5 covers. Uh, sorry if she's listening, but she probably wouldn't know who I'm talking about anyway because she wouldn't want advice. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of these people out there who are going to sell six books a year because they're not bothering to listen to anybody else. But if you go out there and you listen and you put in the hard work, I really can't see why you wouldn't make money doing it. And I've got to say, I'm, re I'm fairly new to the 20 books to 50K group, but it's instantly, I don't really like a lot of Facebook groups, but that's one of my top groups very, very quickly. It's gone right at the top uh, because the conversation is so meaningful, supportive, yeah. and useful, I think, in, in that group. And they're good at kicking out all the turds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a, yeah, it's well run. There's a lot it? of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people online who just want to be jerks or just annoying or just want to say things just because they can because they're online and nobody knows who they are. Uh, that Facebook group has been great about just you say something stupid, you're out. That's how it is. No ifs, ands, or buts. Sorry. Uh, or no sorry. <laughs> and that's the difference. Like if you go on Kboards or one of these other places where lots of writers get together and chat about this stuff, you know, you might post your book up there and all of a sudden it has 20 one-star reviews because some people wanted to be dicks about it. Versus you go somewhere like here, that most likely, fingers crossed, won't happen because we've gotten rid of a lot of those people. How did you then get to know Michael Anderlein and end up writing with him? Um, well, so through the group, uh, plus I have the podcast. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think it's great to do podcasts is if you want to connect with people or even if you don't think you'll have any reason to connect with them now, if you just think they're awesome and maybe you'll want to connect with them at some point. You just call them up or you know email them, shoot them a Facebook message, say, hey, we have this podcast. Are you interested in coming on? And that's great for them, right? Because they can promote their books and everything and get more exposure. Uh, and it's great for you because now you have them as a contact. And so I, I think when I, we first started chatting, just somebody was like, hey, Michael Andrew is awesome. And I was like, oh, cool. Let's have him on the podcast. And that's all it was. Uh, but then probably a few months later, uh, one of my buddies was, and I probably interacted with him here and there more on the Facebook group. Like he was doing a veterans thing where he was giving away books to veterans. So, of course, I got involved in that. Uh, and little bits here and there. And then somebody mentioned that they were thinking about working with him, like writing a book with him. And I was like, oh, I'd never considered that, but his books are 
vampires and space and werewolves and all that stuff and military stuff. And, you know, I was in the Marines. I had, I was doing a vampire werewolf book at the time. I had worked on walking dead and, uh, game of Thrones and these other properties at telltale games. And so I knew how to work in somebody else's IP and there were some similarities as far as genre going on there. So I I was like, okay, that that sounds cool. Do you mind if I reach out to him? And the guy's like, oh no, of course not. There's there's a few people who are talking about doing this with him. And so I I just sent him an email and said, hey, what's going on, buddy? Any interest in, in working together? And we got on the phone and chatted, decided it was a good match, and and hopped on board. So really cool that he accepted that. Um, he's actually working with quite a few authors now, which is exciting. <laughs> it's like growing this whole empire basically. Where uh, to to tell your question earlier, basically he has his Carthurian Gambit universe and then he has people working in uh the basically the world comes to an end kind of and so then there's the post-apocalyptic stuff which craig martell does like soon after and then mine take place like 150 years after that and and then it goes even farther out and be, kind of becomes this fantasy world uh, due to what's going on is these aren't typical vampires they're created through something that affected our nanocytes or something like that and uh <laughs> basically basically Aliens came, an alien came down to try to protect us from another alien species and try to modify our DNA. And in doing so, it kind of worked, but it got corrupted a little bit or, or yeah, something along those lines. And so it made it the first, what are actual vampires, not like the mythological vampires. And, and that those nanocytes evolve and change over the years. And it and leads to this age of magic, which is now going on with, uh, uh CM Raymond and Lee Barbant. They started it, and I'm writing a series in that too now, uh, which is going to be quite fun. It's basically Swords of Sorcery with a semi-post-post-post-apocalyptic feel to it. <laughs> so your uh, monthly payments with Amazon and, and elsewhere, because I assume you're going wide with all of this, must be a nightmare to ca- calculate, mustn't it? Uh, we're not doing wide, actually, because KU is amazing. Uh, KU makes a lot of our money for us, so... We cannot go wide on that. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's, there's too many readers. And a lot of these readers, you'll talk to them. Uh, a lot of them are like sick. They're in the hospital beds or they're reading in their trucks and their truck stops in between, you know, on their shifts and whatnot. And, um, a lot of them are out, like tell us, you know, they communicate with us quite often. They're saying, Hey, we, we don't have money to buy a lot of books. So we do Kindle Unlimited. $9.99 a month. They can read a lot. And like I said, some of these people read one book three books, four books a day. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine spending four or five bucks uh, times four every day? <laughs> That'd be insane. So $10 a month. So in a way it's, you know, quite good for those kind of readers. And, and that's who we're targeting with these. Um, some of my books are wide, but not all of them. So I have a couple of those co-writers that I have to send checks to, and it is quite a pain. Michael though, he's doing it with so many people that he has brought others on to help him out. So he's working with uh, Stephen Campbell, who has the, uh, the a podcast out there, that and he's helping out with some of the business stuff, and like two or three other people that I know of who are helping out with business parts of Michael Underlays. Because it's basically it's a publishing company now. He's taking it, he's giving it a name. He's working with other authors to even do a new universe, a not Carthurian Gambit universe, uh, which I don't know if we're allowed to talk about yet. So I'll just say that, uh, which is exciting, and he's doing all kinds of big things over there. It's fantastic. So. In terms of writing your own books, then, do you think you're going to go back to doing a solo book anytime soon? So I took a month off between books three and four in the Anderley series. Uh, it's called the Reclaiming Honor series. And so book three comes out. It makes good money. I think that month I made 
or the books made seventeen thousand, and then I get half of that plus two thousand from my own books. Um, so that was a nice month, kind of. And then I took a month off to do my own book. I did the sequel to Hounds of God, which is called Hounds of Light, and it's like that werewolf vampire stuff. Um, and that book did nothing. It's it was crap. <laughs> like, I like the book a lot. Readers who like read it was like, this is awesome. It ties into a lot of my other series. Like it ties into the Ali Strom series, and even has a slight reference to the uh, modern necromancy stuff because they're all kind of one universe. Although I haven't really made that clear yet. It's kind of all just hinting so far. Um, probably the next book or the one after that is where I was going to bring it all together. But it just didn't sell. And so I'm, I'm torn, you know, because now I just released book four in the uh, Reclaiming Honor series, and it did just as well as the other ones have done, book three and whatnot. And it's like, why would I write my own books that make not a lot <laughs> when I could write the books that make a lot, uh, you know, relatively? Uh, some authors are out there like, oh, that's nothing. I make 100000 a month. Well, okay, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, I'll be there soon. Well, we all have our journey, don't we? And uh, many people, myself included, you know, are not earning that from books either. Now, you're, yeah. you are, um, you're a very interesting case study because you do the partnerships. Um, you're, a, you're a big networker. Uh, the podcast, this is the reason I do my podcast, is, as you say, it opens doors. It allows you to forge relationships, albeit online, with people who are doing better than you, that you can learn from. Um, is that why you started the podcast? Are you a serial networker? That might be part of it. Um, oh, to, to answer a little bit more of that last question real quick, though, I probably will write my own book again here and there because I, I have four already written, or sorry, already outlined and partially written for my fantasy series, my Falls of Redemption trilogy, which would now not be a trilogy. Uh, and I promised so many readers that I will do that eventually because they're like, we love it. It's our favorite book of all time of yours. We got to read it. Uh, so eventually I have to do that. But it's just I got to make sure I'm established first. Um, so to your networking question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, when I was at the Federal Reserve, one reason I got into Telltale Games is because I started reaching out to lots of people, you know, through LinkedIn and through other channels and just saying, hey, can you grab a coffee or hey, can you hop on the phone for a few minutes of advice or just reply to my email and give me some advice. Here are some thoughts or questions. Uh, I love that you're doing this. What do you think about that program at UCLA? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and that changed my life. And because of that, I wrote the Creative Writing Career book, which is a lot of interviews with people like that. Because I was thinking, oh, I'm getting all this advice for myself. Why don't I share that with the world? And then I kind of just took it to the next level where it's like, oh, okay, I wrote the book. I don't want to just keep writing books like this all the time because it's a lot of work and I'd rather focus on fiction. And I think that's more where the podcast came out, where I was like, okay, I could just hop on the phone with people here and there and do a podcast. And it's the same thing. And I love listening to podcasts. So why not? Uh, I didn't really realize until probably like three or four months into it, the value of the networking side of it. Um, talking with Kevin again from the Wordslinger podcast, he's my co-host on creative writing career. And, and he was talking about that's why he started Wordslinger in the first place. So you just get to reach out to cool people and chat with them when you wouldn't have really been able to otherwise. Or what's, what'd be the excuse to, right? And now you have an excuse to. And then I started realizing, oh, duh, <laughs> that's why I should be doing this. Not just for the fun of it, uh, although I still do it for the fun of it, of course. It, I definitely start started thinking about it more in the lines of that. You know, like we recently had uh, Scott Lynch on the podcast. He's an amazing fantasy author, one of my favorites out there. Uh, has very uh, literary prose in a non-purple way. <laughs> and, um, and, and so bringing him on, it's not like I'm going to be like, oh, I can partner with him or use his publisher or get his agent or anything like that. But, but part of me feels like, having him on the show 
puts me on a similar level with him in some ways. Like now people, if they Google him, they might come across my name as well. You know, that kind of situation. So it's not like the same kind of networking, but it, it has that angle to it in a way. And then we had some other people on the podcast whose agent I do want to work with at some point when I decide I'm ready to go with an agent or I want to go with an agent. And and so that made a lot of sense to have that person on the show, um, not only for that reason, but because also that reason. Uh, yeah, so, so it's a big part of it, but not the only part. Running a podcast takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, commitment. What, what kind of outsourcing do you do in your day-to-day life? None. I, w- I need to do more. Well, with the books, actually, not on the podcast side, but on the books, I do a lot of that now, kind of in the sense that, you know, it, it takes a lot of people um, a lot of time to write a book. And so I get that question often, like, how are you writing so fast? And, and I've definitely changed my process. So what I do now is I just try to I try to reach out to friends when I have the outline going, like co-author or fellow authors and, and say, hey, what do you think of this? Can you just give me a quick glance at this one or two page outline? Not a 15 page outline. I think that would annoy your friends and they wouldn't want to look at the person. But like a one or two page or just or a couple of paragraphs like what does this sound cool to you? Uh, and having that network of people to do that with helps a lot because you don't like go down the wrong path right away. Um, and then I, what I do is I bust out that first draft as quick as I can, uh, usually like three weeks or so. And then instead of like sitting around thinking about it, going back over, over and over and over and over again, I'll send it to a, a, a couple of beta readers that I like, like not really beta readers, but fans who really love my work, who are OK with the fact that there's going to be typos. And I'll send it to them and just say, hey, I just wanted to check to see how this is flowing for you. Is anything feeling off? And they'll read it and they'll say, it's amazing. You're the best writer ever. And that makes me feel happy. Mm-hmm. And then I'll send it to an editor. Um, I have an editor who's fairly inexpensive, which is great for that level uh, of feedback. And, and I'll go through that. And then I'll go back and do my second pass on it. Because at that point, you have all these notes in there, all these people saying, oh, this part felt slow. Or And what I'll often ask my editor to do is say, hey, highlight any areas that you feel like the five senses aren't coming in enough or that you feel are just kind of boring or uh, confusing. And so instead of having to figure that on my own, she'll highlight all that for me. And then I can just go, as I do my pass, fill in the blanks kind of. Like, oh, yes, oh, of course, of course, right there. Oh, yeah, I remember just kind of skimming through that part as I wrote it like a jerk. Uh, of course, that part needs more to it. But, but when you're writing and if you're trying to go back through your own work, that could take like a year instead of a month, you know. And does the podcast work for you as an author? So obviously it does from a networking point of view and a connections point of view and a status point of view. But does it sell books for you? I don't know. I don't think a lot. I doubt it. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, we definitely try to promote the Creative Writing Career book on there sometimes through that. And I've, I've heard from some people who bought it through that channel because of that. But as far as like fiction books, um, yeah, not that I know of. Yeah, I'm sure it's like here and there. I'm sure they've sold some, but it's definitely not like a game changer. Like I would never advise somebody to start doing podcasts to sell their fiction books uh, because I just don't think it's it's the same audience. And even if you're going to do one of these podcasts like best fantasy books to read this year or whatever, and then you try to throw your own in there occasionally or something, I just think it's not going to be the right audience for that. And you'll sell some, but that's, that amount of time ties into this question of, you know, what should we do in to best market your book, which is like a lot of people say, write the next book. Um, so in my early days, that was not good advice because I just kept writing the next book and the next book and the next book, and they wouldn't really do anything different. <laughs> uh, and then I found my, my target market and all that stuff. And now I'm at that point where it's like, it'd be better to just write the next book. So, so if I was just focused on selling books, I would just shut down the podcast and write more books now because that makes the most sense. Every time one comes out, it does well and promotes all the other books and, and all that jazz. Um, 
But I can't. I just love the podcast too much. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> what about your connection with the Sterling and Stone guys? Uh, how how did that come about? How how close are you in that camp? Uh, where did that come about? Somehow I got on their podcast. I don't. I mean, I was definitely listening to their podcast when I was driving to Telltale from time to time. Like when I was first thinking about getting into the self-publishing world, I think there had been a speaker. Bella Andre spoke at the San Francisco Writers Conference. Uh, Bella Andre Bella Forest, and she you know, inspired the hell out of me. And then I was listening to their podcast and that was inspiring the hell out of me. And so I think it was at that point, you know, where I was just excited to reach out to people. So I reached out to them and said, Hey, I work at telltale games and I'm also doing the writing stuff. Would you be interested in me having me on the show? And David is a big video gamer. And so he was like, hell yeah, let's bring him on. And so that worked out and that was nothing for, you know, I just did the show and that was it for a while. And I kind of kept in contact with them a little bit because they had this, uh, they had this kid's, part of their publishing house that was interesting and they were considering bringing somebody on for that uh, we ended up not going down that route because they just it would take too much time and kids books it's just really hard to make them profit you know like i was saying it's 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 a tougher industry uh but how did well, it was funny so so and i was listening to the podcast and sean was talking about getting into screenwriting and you know i'd done my screenwriting stuff so i reached out to him just one day randomly and i was like hey sean uh remember i was on your show uh, any interest in maybe collaborating on this whole screenwriting endeavor thing you keep chatting about? And he emailed me back right away and was like, dude, we're in San Francisco for one night and that night is tonight. And that's so weird that you reached out to me that one day we're in San Francisco, which is where I live. And you want to have dinner? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, yeah, okay. So we, me and him and uh, Johnny got together and just chat, chatted about screenplay ideas. And I went out to Austin for the Austin Film Festival. And that's where Sean lives. So we had dinner again. And, and that's kind of where it started becoming a real thing. And then I adapted, I actually adapted, I took a, a month off for paternity leave. And during that month, my wife's aunt was here helping out too. So I could go out and write for a few hours a day. And I was able to get four of his books adapted into screenplays. I think four, I think four, three or four. Uh, and then we ended up selling the one and had some interest in the others, but they haven't gone anywhere yet. So, you know, there's still fingers crossed could happen. Um, but as far as, I think that's about as far as it went. Like we didn't, you know, become besties or, Anything like that yet? <laughs> <laughs> now, the um, I re referred to this right at the beginning of the interview that uh, I'd spotted and taken a screenshot of your post in the 20 Books of 50K forum on Facebook where you mm -hmm. announce that you have quit your day job and you're going full-time author. So what made you do that? And how are you feeling now? Because I'm just trying to remember what the date that was. It was a little while ago. How are you feeling now? You've had a few weeks at it now. Uh, well, actually, so my first, my last day on the job was last Friday. Oh, so really? I'm only, okay. yeah, and today's Wednesday. So it's only a, a three days into actual experiencing it. Um, <laughs> You're still terrified. Yeah, no, it's, it's going great. Um, like I said, I think with these books, it's, it's not a guarantee, but I don't feel like I really have to worry about it as long as I keep writing in the Michael Anderley universe. And then at some point, what I need to do is figure out how to get the, you know, Justin Sloan CEO thing going on. Like how does my own business as a writer take off so that if something happens, I don't have to rely on those books, right? Uh, that would be the goal. But so I did the math before I quit, and I was looking at, you know, okay, if I spend, if I can do like two hours break, two hours break, two hours, then that's easily six to 8,000 words a day. And so far, that's been going well, which is great. Um, what I'm finding is I'm way more tired than I thought I would be. <laughs> like, for some reason, you know, when you, when you write on the weekends or you're just writing whenever you want to, uh, or whenever you can, I mean, you're just like in it and you're in it and you're in it. But now that I'm 
all day doing that, I definitely find myself getting more sleepy, um, my head nodding off. And so I think I'm going to start instituting some kind of nap schedule. And we chatted about it on our, our Slack group with the other Cthulhu Gambit people yesterday. And we decided the nap and frap way is the way to go, which means <laughs> right for a little bit, take a nap, wake up, have a frappuccino with an extra shot or two of espresso, write some more. That's the way to make it keep going. Because what I did Monday and Tuesday, they basically tried to write all day with just one break for the gym. And that's it. Uh, and it feels good, but but by the time my wife got home, I was just like, I'm so sleepy. <laughs> so yeah, mostly mostly I'm just worried about trying to figure out what the good schedule is going to be. Whether that's write, take a nap, write some more, eat some food, write some more, go to the gym, and then write some more, or <laughs> or something else. And are you doing a seven day a week, or are you doing five? Well, because of the kids and stuff, probably just five. Uh, my wife is a aspiring entrepreneur also, so one thing that started happening is when I started making money from the books, she started giving me more time, which meant she had less time to do her stuff. So what we're going to try to do now is Monday through Friday, I write my butt off and on the weekends, give her time to do her thing. Yeah. And, and that'll probably work. Won't it? It's good. It's good that you've got two entrepreneurs in the house though, because a lot of the time uh, it creates a tension, doesn't it? When there's somebody like you, who's oh, yeah. t- taking a bit of a punt, uh, well, obviously it's working for you now, but in the early days, you have to fan yeah. those flames, don't you? To get the flames going. Yeah, well, we did our taxes, and uh, we made, like, I think last year, we definitely lost a lot more than we gained on the writing business. So, <laughs> there's that. But, yeah, as far as, like, just even putting in the time, I can't imagine uh, these couples who, like, the guy wants to be a writer and the or vice versa, and the other, the spouse wants to just watch TV or something. That would... <laughs> That'd be horrendous. <laughs> well, you, uh, congratulations on being able to sustain yourself full time as a writer. I think that's a an amazing achievement, and you certainly deserve it because you've written so many books. It's it's quite incredible. Uh, you're such a productive guy, and doing the podcast as well, you know, and having a young family. There's a lot of things to squeeze in there. What's next for you? What what are your next aims? Yeah, well, I talked about maybe wanting to do the agent route at some point. Um, somebody gave me that advice that. You know, it's great to do what I'm doing, but it might be nice to have a diversified income. Um, so the key right now is I want to write enough books in the self-publishing side of it that I can get up to, uh, you know, more like 50K a month, which would be amazing <laughs> if I can get there. Uh, and then kind of take a break and work on something, that, not take a break, but in between maybe. You know, like if I can get one book out a month in this series and then focus on my own book for a little while on the other half of that month or whatever it is. And then get something that's super prosy, you know, like well-written prose that a big six publisher would take on. Not like a medium publisher or an independent press or whatever, but like one of the big six. And then go that route with an agent. I have a good contact with one of my top favorite authors' agents right now. And so I'm like, if I had the time to bust that out, that'd be the perfect opportunity to leverage that relationship. Uh, So I'm debating, you know, how to tackle the time for that. But that's one of the goals, diversification. Um, I'm publishing a little bit of, some of my books are going wide, but, uh, not all of them. I don't think that's really a goal right now. Cause like I talked about, I love the KU readers and you know, you're choosing, you're choosing, do I exclude those readers or these readers? And right now I don't want to exclude these readers cause I know they love me. So <laughs> why would I, um, and those are the two big goals. There's, there's always the question of like the screenwriting and video game thing. Uh, it's funny, like the week I announced I was going full time, a video game that I really love I can't name it, but the I, they're doing IP that I'm obsessed with. They contacted me and were like, hey, any interest? And so I'm kind of torn. <laughs> I'm kind of hoping that like I could do something like that like 20 hours a week. So I'm still pretty much full time, still getting the books done, but then also working on these cool properties. I don't mind that, but I want to make sure that I get 
you know, the book's out there and established to a certain degree before I start thinking about these other options. Thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.